Hey folks, if you enjoyed our episode 187 on free speech, you should know that Wes and I had a subsequent hour and a half additional conversation to follow up on many of the topics in that episode. I want to play a few short clips of it here for you now, both to tempt you to become a partially examined life citizen or Patreon supporter and get the full discussion, but also these are pretty nice self-contained chunks that I think supplement what we just said on the last episode well for all of you listeners. In the first clip, we're going to talk about Jordan Peterson after doing a little bit of research on his views on free speech. In the second clip, we're going to get at what's problematic about hate speech in terms of speech acts, right? If something is a good faith argument, something that you honestly believe, then that is the kind of thing that we've typically wanted to see protected, unlike a straight-up insult. But of course, there's plenty of speech that is both something that someone sincerely believes and is also insulting. The third clip is from right near the end of the discussion, where we return to meta-ethics, and I clarify that point about why I don't think there are fundamental ethical principles. So Wes and I ended up agreeing on quite a lot in this, but still very lively, very interesting. It's really a whole additional episode. I hope you check it out. Become a Partially Examined Life citizen at partiallyexaminedlife.com, or support us even at the $1 level at patreon.com slash partiallyexaminedlife. So we brought up Jordan Peterson, and I have taken the extra few days since we discussed to actually listen to some of his stuff, to listen to a couple lectures. And so I have more of an understanding of his overall project. There seem to be quite a few elements to it. So did you watch that little freedom of speech thing I sent you or just the long one? Yeah, I watched both of those videos and we will post them for listeners, I guess, when we post this podcast. The short one was actually part of a longer discussion, which I've now watched a, a chunk of it from 2013, Freedom of Speech, Not Just Another Value. But in that, he actually goes through, in summary, his whole Maps of Meaning project. Okay. And the clip that I sent you that we'll send to, to folks had the fundamental piece about freedom of speech, which is that kind of just like we're talking, people need to talk in order to figure out what they think. So unless you have the freedom to say whatever, to speak your truth, then you're never going to be able to figure out what that is. You're never going to get the feedback from other people to be able to improve your thought, etc. And he, he's bringing a clinical perspective to, the, to this as well. So he's a psychologist. And part of what happens with people who are crazy to some degree is that they start to live in their own little idiosyncratic private world. They're not as subject to public correction, the kind of public correction that would happen, for instance, in conversation. And they even they develop their own rituals, they develop in a way their own little language. In a way, it's like developing their own little culture that's disconnected from that of other people. Clinicians see that sort of isolation and its effects. And so I think he's thinking about this therapeutically. There's kind of a million spirit to it in the sense that the idea is that you hopefully get at the truth, but he's making a more fundamental point that even to be able to think properly, to be able to function as a thinker, you really, at least a lot of that has to be done publicly. It has to be done with other people. It has to be done Socratically in a, in a dialogue. You might get to a point where you can do that on your own, he says in this clip, but to do that is kind of an advanced thing where you're pretending to be two people at once, right? You take one side, you take the other. Those two sides have a conversation with each other inside your own mind. This is what he thinks of as kind of independent thinking. So the idea is that we can't even, unless we can say everything that's on our mind, we can't really truly think about things. And this is something clinicians do. You know, They encourage patients to 
if you're psychoanalyst, which he seems to be influenced by psychoanalysis, but you lie down on the couch and you say everything, even if it's horrible, you know, even if it's, I want to murder someone or something like that, everything that comes into your mind, it's actually beneficial to allow those things to come to the surface instead of simply repressing them. Now, how to translate that to social contexts, I think, is, a, is an open question. Are you enticed yet? Here's clip number two. So I think the question is, what speech act are you engaged in that you described that if you're insulting, we regard that as that is a species of harm. It's very hard. It's, the state couldn't come in and prohibit all insults. There might be a, a good social function of insult, but certainly when insulting goes too far, at least insulting is, is not off limits for potential evaluation for restriction or censure of some sort, for discouragement. Whereas when you're making a claim, making a good faith argument, stating something that you think to actually be true, then that should be something that gets total protection. That's what Mill is talking about, that, you know, our minds need this. Even if you're saying something dumb, as, as Peterson said, like that's part of getting the feedback on that is important to then improving yourself. And the question is, if you're repeating something that you've just heard about, you know, how Sandy Hook didn't really happen or these kind of scurrilous rumors, is that a good faith argument or are you engaging in some kind of deliberate political provocation or let's not even say political provocation, just are you being insulting and are you, is your intention sufficient to actually categorize your speech act as such or is it just... That's a good point. I mean, so we're talking now about conspiracy theorists who are basically people who are clinically paranoid. They are diagnosably paranoid to believe these things, like that Sandy Hook was a false flag thing or something like that. But And yet they are making a good faith argument. Is paranoia infectious? Just because, you know, it's usually communities of people that are discussing this. It's not one individual. I think in every case, when I look at some of those, like if you go to a 9-11 is an inside job website, it's a good faith argument. And in fact, they're in a way, they're more scientifically minded than most of us. They just fill up the site with all these links and arguments and this and that. It's amazing. It's almost like they're hoarders of information and arguments. Although if you prod those arguments a little bit, they're all these very kind of speculative counterfactuals. Like, oh, it's not possible for steel to melt at that temperature, blah, blah, blah. Very weak in the end, but at the same time, very cerebral. And do you know enough about steel to say, you know, definitively that that's wrong? Like, that's the thing. It takes so much effort to try to rebut this. And so should you have to even bother, I guess, as part of the... Yeah, we depend on a social consensus for that things. We don't know personally about steel, but we depend on like the scientific consensus of people who are not crazy. And so we're always doing a, a psychological evaluation when we make those decisions. Like, who can we trust? Who's not crazy? And here's the last clip about fundamental principles in ethics. Another issue that was left over from last time, I had said that we kind of learned from philosophical history that there really shouldn't be such things as basic moral principles, <laughs> or that morality is more complex than, you know, whenever we try to come up with a theory like utilitarianism or, or the categorical imperative, like it turns out not to work. And you said, well, you know, you got to at least have love thy neighbor. You got to have that as a bedrock principle or it doesn't work. In a broad sense, not in the, the sense that Nietzsche is criticizing. I feel like the ethical philosophers that I found most convincing are the ones that are basically following in an Aristotelian way. So that whenever you say, kind of like, and this is anti-foundationalism, this is Fish's 
position. At least he's in this broad camp. You know, and we did that Sellers episode, which was anti-foundationalism and epistemology that says you, there is no, you know, given in experience that we, to grasp one thing, we have to grasp a whole range of things. And I think morally, there's something comparable there. So that whenever you have love thy neighbor, like, well, then you actually, what you have is a pretty detailed set of intuitions that are social. I want to say they're shared attitudes toward particular cases. You kind of have a whole unarticulated framework that you're implicitly referring to. And in order to navigate that, right, Aristotle said you need phronesis, you need practical wisdom. So even just having a rule of any sort, you have to have a judgment on how to apply the rule to particular cases, which means for me, maybe this is just redefining what a principle is instead of saying there are no more fundamental moral principles. But you have to admit that a fundamental moral principle is always going to underdetermine its application, that you need moral principles plus some more basic moral sense or, you know, practical wisdom informed by the experience of the ages, et cetera, et cetera, which so to me, it's that thing that the moral principles are tools that we use, but it's sort of the fundamental moral sense that is informed by thinking about these principles, but among many other things that ultimately is you know, what we need. That's the virtues that we're trying to cultivate. And so I was trying to think about how is that connected? Can we say anything? Is there, is there something comparable politically? Because it seems like well, no, you have to have laws. You can't just, yeah. you know, let the government do whatever they use their phronesis and do whatever they think. Why? But, you know, that's why we have judges because laws too need interpretation. So we have separation of powers. We try to spread this out. We try to make it, you know, so it's no one person's wisdom that they're drawing on that we're looking at public standards of decency and the judges reflecting on what those public standards are and they don't all agree on that. So we have multiple judges, you know, in the Supreme Court and we have all these things. But yeah, so you can't get around the, the human element by reference to principles. And you're thinking specifically of the principle of free speech is something that... Yes. The principle itself underdetermines... What we have to do in any given circumstance, I think. We don't even have to get to the harder cases before we realize that, like the fire in a crowded theater exception, defamation, right? The idea of free speech underdetermines those exceptions until you flesh it out, until you start looking at very specific examples. And But it still doesn't mean it's not a fundamental guiding principle. So you create sub-principles, you create the harm principles, you create fighting words, you create all these guiding principles, sub-principles under the, but still, even those require, yeah. you know, the phronesis to apply to particular situations. Yeah. It's not just a set algorithm and a set rule-following thing, but it's, yeah. You got to be able to deal with specific examples. And when I mentioned love thy neighbor, I was actually thinking not so much of a principle as a paradigmatic example. You know, I was very affected as a kid by reading about the Holocaust, that was very formative for me in shaping my like moral point of view, thinking, first of all, that the lesson of the Holocaust isn't that there are these moral monsters and then there's me. That's just too simple. It's like everyone, any one of us could be put in these circumstances where we do these horrific, unthinkable things, and that terrified me. So the bedrock paradigm becomes just this instance of some photo of something terrible being done in the Holocaust, these things that still haunt me, like someone being a woman holding her child being shot in the back of the head or something like that, where, okay, this is something 
if there is such a thing as morality, we agree this can't happen. Even there, people can try and complicate the pit, but let's, let's leave that aside. But so this can happen. And, and then I think about how to prevent that from happening. And I think that's why I'm so focused on the quality of public discourse. You know, like I would like to see less animosity. And that's why I'm focused on identity politics, which I just see as a sort of extension of the kind of, nationalistic sentiment that leads to some and racist bigoted sentiment that leads to one mass atrocity or another. It always looks from the inside. It looks like, well, you know, there's a bunch of assholes over here who did all these horrific things historically and we have the right to hate them. But that's what it's always looked like from the inside to people who engage in this kind of nationalism or identity politics. And so I think we have to, be opposed to those things. So that's my general moral moral framework. So it's not that I think there's an easy way to follow these these rules, but that the love thy neighbor thing, the one thing that Spinoza says is really the dogma you accept. I see that as the like the dogma I accept fundamentally is whatever ha- is happening in that picture. So those are the three clips. If you enjoyed them, I'm sure you would enjoy the rest of the conversation. Go to partiallyexaminedlife.com, click the Become a Citizen banner. You can get the Citizen feed beamed right to your mobile device, even using Apple's podcast app now. Or alternatively, you can sign up through Patreon. They also have a custom feed address that you can put in any podcast app. Both ways of doing this will get you lots of bonus content. If you're signing up at the $5 or more a month level, you'll get every episode we've ever recorded. We are working on integrating Patreon and the back end but that is not going to happen right away. All right, have a great rest of your day. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.